0: Welcome to the Flourishing Pastor Podcast. You hear a lot about this idea of flourishing, but if you're a pastor or if you lead a nonprofit or business, it's fair to ask what flourishing actually looks like for you and for your work. Here's the reality. Flourishing for individuals and for churches alike is about far more than leadership tips or strategic plans. Instead, when we read in the scriptures that King David shepherded the people of Israel with integrity of heart and with skillful hands, part of what we're reading is a dynamic, Multi layered framework in which both leaders and those they lead can flourish. I'm Aaron Klein Hanbury, and over the course of 10 conversations, pastor and author Tom Nelson and I will look at what he calls the lost art of shepherd leadership and how recovering it can help leaders and the work they lead flourish.
1: my name is Ruthie Siders and I'm one of the pastors at Grace Chapel. For years, I had tried the one-person yoke and felt the weight of everything depending on me. Um, And after a particularly difficult season, um, it was recommended to me to meet with a spiritual director. And she has really helped me picture Jesus more and more present in my life and ministry. Um, And in essence, over the last eight years since I have kind of switched from this one-person yoke to the two-person yoke. It's like I'm pulling together with Jesus. It's lowered stress. It's increased my attentiveness to his presence and to his work in my life. Um, And I've really experienced uh, the power of prayer much more present. It's almost like, you know, since we're pulling together, we're walking together, we're talking together, much more 24-7 than just, you know, taking his yoke, And he's encouraging me, but instead it's this, like I said, the two-person yoke where he's right next to me pulling alongside.
0: For those of you who know Tom Nelson, this won't be a surprise. For those of you who haven't met him yet, I'll let you in on something. The idea, the concept, and the icons of yokes are really important to Tom. He wears one around his neck, Not a full yoke, mind you, but a a smaller necklace version. So today we're going to talk all about those yokes. And of course, that means that we're again talking here. Hey, Tom.
2: Aaron, I'm excited to be with you and excited to talk about
0: yokes. (laughs) (laughs) You describe in The Flourishing Pastor these moments where you learned that all of the information you'd acquired through uh, formal theological and ministry training had not completely
2: prepared you. Can you talk about that? I share this not in any critique of those who taught me. Maybe it's my own density. I maybe miss things, but I'm great. Very grateful for my seminary training and all those who trained me. But having said that, uh, I did have some pretty major moments where I go, "Oh my, I missed this. What happened?" And and what happened was for me is that I had worked with a parachurch organization uh, for ten years before I became a pastor, and I wrestled with the big gap between students who are young who had a lot of Bible information, but were not seeing a lot of formation and transformation in their own life. And as you can imagine, I found a convenient refuge in that dissonance based on their biological maturity. Right. And we know this now, you know, from neuroscience that your cerebral Front cerebral cortex doesn't really fully develop until you're like mid-20s. I didn't know that then. But I just found this refuge in a lack of biological maturity. Well, imagine I go to pastor church plant. I now work with older adults, many of whom have had years of Bible study. And again, this is good. So that's important, right? right? right. Uh, and what's surprised me as a pastor is that I encountered many chronologically mature believers who are spiritually deeply immature, even though they had so much Bible information. And that shocked me because, you know, I was the chief giver of good Bible information. That's part <laughs> of being a teacher, right? I want them to that's know the what God's part. word says. Yeah. And I, I still do. I have a great passion for God's masterpiece in the scriptures. But So that, that kind of jarred me. And then I began to look at my own life. And I thought, you know, that's there's a lot in my own life. I've been a Christian since I'm young. The lack of spiritual transformation is powerful. And yet I know so much information about the Bible. So anyway, that that jarred me. and 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 so I had to make some questions in my mind. I had to deal with some questions, I mean, and and that was like, if truth is truth and God's word is true, which I deeply believe it, it is, why are we not seeing transformation at that level? So my seminary training was high on propositional knowledge. That is, a classroom information that's important to learn about the Bible. But what I realized is I had an impoverished paradigm of how we're transformed. And I would say simply is that, this is deeply tied to tacit knowing, but simply is that when I studied the gospels, I focused more on what Jesus taught, which is really important, the precepts, but I pretty much ignored his practices as the incarnate son of God. And that was what helped me rethink discipleship in a more integral whole way, that it's not only cognitively grasping Jesus' precepts, it's embracing his embodied practices. And that was the big shift for me. Describe
0: the difference in information acquisition and transformation. Where, where is the breakdown? I mean, we're describing some of the breakdown, but obviously you can accumulate the sort of data and you've not been transformed. Mm-hmm. And I would presumably say you can't be transformed without some of that. But where is the kind of what is the difference? How do you tell the difference? How do you see it, say, in these congregants or in your own life?
2: Yeah. Well, one of the things that's really important here, and this is a little bit of a deeper conversation, but underlying this idea of transformation is what does it mean to know? Mm -hmm. So So Jesus will say, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. It's one of his famous statements. And the knowing idea there is, is it just knowing about Jesus? Is it just uh, knowing the cognitive doctrinal truths about Jesus? As important as it is, it's knowing him. So all the way from the Old Testament, one of the primary Hebrew words of knowing is yada, to know. You know, we hear Yoda, remember Yoda, the one who knows. It's kind of fun from Star Wars. Uh, but the idea of scripture of knowing or epistemology is knowing some things, right? It's, it's propositional. I'm not minimizing that. But foundationally, it's knowing someone. In fact, this yada can mean the deepest intimacy between a man and a woman. Not just knowing about, but experiencing oneness, right. and you get that in the King James version. Yeah, with to knowing know as somewhat. this euphemism. So we have an epistemological problem in our understanding of formation and transformation. It's not just knowing something; it's first and foremost knowing someone. And I don't want to make too big of a bridge or, or break there, but that's really important in our conversation, because then the focus is intimacy with Him, right? And obedience fits into that. Jesus says, you know, if you obey me, right? And my word, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So I'm just saying transformation and Christ-like formation is not just cognitive awareness. It's deep embodiment, it's deep intimacy, it's deep oneness, it's deep knowing and being known. And I had no concept of that, theologically, Mm -hmm. philosophically, It, it, becoming a pastor, I had no idea. So my discipleship methods, models, and framework was deeply flawed. The precepts seem easy to me in, in the sense of what
0: you're supposed to do with them.
2: What about the practices? Well, the practices are more than just the disciplines. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Mark will say that. Right, Jesus, he withdrew, right, to, to pray, to study. So you watch Jesus in action. I think there's a really uh, impoverished understanding of Jesus as a leader. Mm. I really believe Jesus is the most brilliant leader ever lived. And he knows most about the leadership enterprise than anyone. And of course, he turns it upside down, right? It's not power, it's servanthood and so forth. But look at Jesus, the gospels, through the lens of servant leadership. Begin to see what's there. And it will be profoundly transformation in what he does and why he does, how he interacts with the tax collector. What does that mean for leaders, right? The Samaritan woman. I mean, how does he disciple his followers? What does he do? And not just because he's brilliant as a son of God, but as a leader, what's he doing? And why is he doing it? If you look at the gospels through that lens, it's profoundly illuminating and it's transformational. If you see Jesus as this brilliant leader that we emulate, not only in our formation, but in our leadership enterprise. So for example, the word disciple, the main word in the Greek text is mathetes or matheteo. And we get different, English words from it. And, and I've always had a love for disciple discipleship, right? The Great Commission, make disciples, right? right? This is important. We all know this is important. But what does disciple mean? And in English, many times because of a Western German model, okay, there's all kinds of enlightenment dynamics at work here. Our understanding of knowing is primarily curriculum, primarily a classroom. Again, that has its place. I don't want to be misunderstood here. But the Hebrew idea of knowing is deeply embedded in life-on-life experiential personal knowledge that can only be obtained and transferred in relationship, right? Uh, It's not something you can propositionally declare. For example, learning how to ride a bike. You have a beautiful daughter, uh, and uh, you want to teach her how to ride, ride a bike. Well, you can give her a manual, right? I mean, this is the handlebars. You follow me? I mean, a manual can kind of orient you. Tell her the color over and over. Yeah, yeah. But you (laughs) got to go out and have her get on the bike and you need to guide her. But she needs to learn the bike. This is tacit knowledge. This is experiential knowledge. This is personal knowledge. So this has implications on how we train and train leaders, but it also has implications how we see Jesus teaching. Abraham Heschel, his great Hebrew rabbi, said something so brilliant. He said, one of the great dangers is the tendency for all of us to see what we know rather than know what we Mm -hmm. see. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. as I began to see what the text Mm -hmm. said more, not what I already knew about the text, it began to rock my world and how I discipled, how I saw formation and how I saw leadership Mm. around a comprehensive apprenticeship that is deeply relational and deeply tacit, rich in knowing. So when you talk about this Mm -hmm. increasing
0: understanding, upending the way you were pursuing some of these some of this work of the ministry uh, and discipleship, those sorts of things. What What do you mean? What did that look like for this to be
2: upended, or what did it look like as it was upended? Well, what I realized is that I was so strong in propositional information in terms of as a local pastor teaching my view of teaching, small group uh, curriculum, and that kind of thing. All those things are important, but what What happened was I realized that that will not accomplish the kind of knowing that takes place in a relational transformation, whether it's with Jesus or with somebody else. So what happened for me is I went back to the very basics. What is discipleship? And I realized as well as I was intentioned, it was actually reductionistic. The part that I was doing was good. It just wasn't comprehensive. It was so focused on the gaining of information about the Bible or doctrinal truths, which again are important, It missed the reality that this word, mathetes, as Jesus modeled with his disciples, was deeply relational. It was comprehensive. It was all dimensions of life. It was every nook and cranny. And we talk about how the gospel speaks into every nook and cranny of life, but our discipleship often doesn't. And I realized how relational it was. So I'm just saying we began to rethink. And what helped me is to go back to the early Greek English dictionaries that emphasized taste, which is again, the main word for discipleship in Greek. The first entry was apprenticeship, then pupil, then disciple, right? So these words matter because apprenticeship, at least in most English language, is a comprehensive, all of life transfer from a master to a, a protege, right? Or to a beginner, yeah, and, it's almost like this idea of copying. Like yes. You copy your ma- The yes. apprentice
0: copies the master or becomes a copy of the master. Exactly.
2: In all dimensions. Because when you're mentored by someone in an apprenticeship, you not only learn the skills, you become like them. Their emotion, their values. You share life on life. There's a transfer beyond proposition. The point is, is that that's true with Jesus and our apprenticeship with Jesus and his great imitation. But it's also true in how we encourage multi-generational relationships in the church, right? The older and younger working together in deep relationship, forming each other in Christ-likeness and community. Uh, And uh, it's really important also in our understanding of our intimacy with Jesus as primary, that apprenticeship with Jesus touches every dimension of life, but it's deeply relational. It's relational knowing uh, through his word and obedience. And it's really at the heart of it is understanding the text that transformed my thinking was what I call a great invitation in Matthew 11.
3: Christians often report that their churches don't prepare them for the pressures, opportunities, or challenges of their daily work. At Made to Flourish, we call this the Sunday to Monday gap, an unhealthy divide that can blur our understanding of God's work in the world, work we are meant to join. To help close that gap, We want to give you a collection of practical theological books that we mail directly to you completely free of charge. In this free box, you'll also get a copy of the latest issue of the award-winning Common Good magazine, and for a limited time, Tom Nelson's book, The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership. So whether you are a pastor or layperson, visit madetoflourish.org slash box to get the box for free and start closing the gap between Sunday and Monday.
0: When you talk about this great imitation, you're talking about Matthew 11, uh, 25 through 30. And I have to say, it's hard to encounter Tom Nelson without <laughs> uh, encountering some version of the yoke. I mean, you carry one around. Yes, I do. It's around my a, neck. There's a wall probably 25 feet from us that has a yoke mounted on it. Um, obviously, it's been influential <laughs> for you and for uh, the fruit of your ministry here. What, uh, why? Well, let's talk about the great invitation. What is the great invitation? What are we talking about in that passage and why yeah. is it meant so much? I,
2: I think it's a bedridden truth, as A.W. Tozer said. I mean, I, I read it many, many years, but uh, it really came home to me in this understanding of Jesus' invitation for us to experience the life he has for us in the fullness of the gospel, right? In all dimensions of life. So the text actually uh, says, come to me. You know, this is, this is powerful to me both in in the jewish context but in the christian context that jesus invitation is that invitation to come to him not to a set of rules even a religion right uh, it's to come to know him and be known by him right so paul says to to be known by him so come to me is the invitation to intimacy As i keep saying that's that's it right to know him to be known by him but how do we do that how do we grow? come to me all who are wearing heavy laden and i will give you rest which again is the picture of the genesis text right? Of the life God has for us of rest. And one day in the new heavens and earth, but take my yoke and learn from me for I am gentle and humble of heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. The Point simply is there is that I love the picture of the metaphor of the yoke because it gives a sense of historically, and rabbis use this, of two animals in an agrarian context being connected together in a farm implement. That's a yoke I always tell people is not, you know, an egg. <laughs> it's like a McDonald's golden arches upside down, right? And with a bar across it. For two animals, oxen are placed in it. So that's the imagery and the rabbis use that. And it's filled with all kinds of meaning because there's a sense of deep connection between the master rabbi and the young new rabbi. And it's multifaceted. It's every aspect of life, thinking, being, doing, willing, relational, it's deeply relational and it's highly transformational. And that's what I love. Jesus paints that picture. And as I said before, what's really amazing in typical Rabbi Jesus is a yoke. This word throughout history is viewed as a picture of oppression. And here is the path to true freedom and rest. Isn't that incredible? I mean, mm-hmm. and yoke, being yoked to Jesus, being an apprentice to Jesus does not require anything but submission and obedience and love, mm. right? Not great gifts, talents, you say goodbye to an old way of life to experience a life you never imagined with Him. Over time,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you become like Him when you're yoked with Him, uh, and uh, this has always been a really powerful uh, teaching for me. And it really frames the idea of apprenticeship with Jesus. Again, it is multifaceted, touches all dimensions of life, and as Dallas Willard brilliantly said, when we are yoked to Jesus, right, we learn how to live our life like He would if He were us in every dimension. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So let's talk briefly outside of maybe a programmatic context for maybe a personal discipleship mm-hmm. context or a personal, um, for more of a personal relationship with Jesus
2: context. What does it look like? There's a sense, I think, every day that we find our sense of meaning and joy and uh, conversation primarily with him. That even though we have many other responsibilities and duties, that he is the focus of our affection. Our ears are attuned to him. And clearly that is not only a sense of true mystical connection. I mean, is use that word properly, but there's also deeply scripture that we are encountering Jesus heart and desires and ways in the scriptures itself. So I would say that, and I would also say that there's a sense of undivided loyalty to him wholehearted devotion, undivided loyalty, ongoing conversation, hopeful expectation. um, And ultimately, that he is the object of our highest thoughts, our greatest affections. He stretches our imagination, and he's the one who's always with us. So that picture of yoke, but we're also in a posture, again, of learning from him, expecting him, being loved by him. Uh, I'd love that picture because I imagine, even in like in the book of Hebrews, remember he says, we're running the race, but our eyes fixed on Jesus. And I love that picture of how do you fix your eyes on Jesus when you're in the yoke? The animals were eye to eyeball. And I always picture myself with him, eyeball to eyeball with him, mm. fixing mm. my eyes on him. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So there's paradox in the Great imitation, There is. Because there's these things we've talked about objects of some form of oppression, at least constraint and power control. And then there's easy and light and there's, there's freedom and constraint and all of these dynamics at play, which is of course, in many ways, a picture of the Christian life that there's limits and constraints and we're not the ones in power. And yet there's, there's freedom and life and refreshment (laughs) despite being bound. Let's talk about that in the context of the local church. So, uh, certainly, many discipleship initiatives are programmatic in nature. Can there be a programmatized way of pursuing apprenticeship? What is that?
2: What can that look like? Yeah, in our church context, we do have curriculum. We have classes that help kind of introduce people to the concepts, to the ideas that are important to us, um, our values, our mission. So absolutely in doctrine. The difference is we do it in a pedagogy that is deeply relational. So People sit in small groups. They get to know each other, right? There may be a teacher or a a prompter, but the pedagogy is not strictly monological. It's not strictly propositional. There's a lot of engagement and conversation. And then what happens after that sort of gathering is that we really nourish ongoing relational connection outside the classroom where life on life takes place in a small group context. Often in our context, it's common vocations, common uh, seasons of life, stages of life. But we're just trying to ke- create the pathways for people to really grow together, to l- do life on life together in a very appropriate way in an increasingly transparent way where they can grow. And, and particularly, it's really important in multi-generational pieces because if you can have someone who has, is older or has more maturity working with a younger generation, there's wonderful transfer of tacit knowledge and experience and wisdom that brings more formation and wisdom to that younger person, for example. So we nourish small groups are really important to us, like a lot of churches, but they have some of this formative ideas of really living life on life. And one of the other things we do very intentionally, which I know we're gonna talk about, is that we really focus on apprenticeship in the workplace or in the unpaid, paid place on Monday. Because so much of our formation takes place outside of Sunday. It's when we're the scattered church. So Our discipleship formative efforts is creating an imagination and tools and skills how to see that Monday world we enter as being a primary place for spiritual formation and discipleship. Some of it is a lack of imagination and and rich theology that allows people to see that my apprenticeship with Jesus, my yoke with Jesus, I'm a yoke with Jesus on Sunday, but I'll also yoke with Jesus on Monday. Let's talk about what apprenticeship is.
0: So our models for apprenticeship that are common that we can grasp pretty easily would be maybe in the medical profession with doctors mm-hmm. or in one of the more trade-focused professions. Yeah, like plumbers, electricians, yeah, these sorts of things. The dynamic, at least apparently, with Jesus is different in that he's not physically here with us uh, yet, again, um, in that he's not physically here with us in the way that a fellow doctor right. or a master plumber mm-hmm. or mechanic would be. Mm-hmm. So, what, is, what are we talking about when we talk about apprenticeship with Jesus and what does that look like?
2: So, apprenticeship with Jesus has an individual and communal reality that we live out every day. So, I would say individually, yes, it is that sense of his presence, the practices you're learning from him. It's like the Good Shepherd. We're talking about the, he's guiding you, giving you provision, att- attentive care. So there is an individual component of being yoked with Jesus. And that affects our behavior, priorities, passions, language, right? Profoundly, because we're learning how to live our life like Jesus would. And how we deal with anger, lust, we or loving our enemies. I mean, these are very real things that we're practicing with Jesus. So I don't want to minimize that. That's, That's a mindset. That's a heart, right? Like as Jesus says, to love your enemies. What does that mean, Jesus? How am I supposed to love this very difficult person at work? I mean, this is real formation. This is real apprenticeship. So I don't wanna minimize that. But also we are apprentices as a local community and we are apprenticing to Jesus as a local church family. And that looks in many ways, right? Like that we are encouraging one another to love and good deeds. We are engaging in corporate worship. We're serving, we're giving, right? I mean, like the collective mission of the church, um, we're caring for the poor. We're, I mean, these are things that are part of apprenticeship in the local church as a whole body, as an institution. And how does Jesus speak in to the priorities, of the budget of the church, for example, to mission, to liturgy, to my community, to justice, to the sanctity of life, to my work, to the economy. That's when I'm saying collectively, that permeates preaching, teaching, conversation, hymnody, literature uh, that we do, uh, and programming. Mm. So it's comprehensive. I'm just saying it it, it reshifts your focus. It's not just about Sunday. As good as Sunday is, Monday informs Sunday, and Sunday informs Monday. Apprenticeship then
0: is far beyond what we might call christian content <laughs> that it's it's not just Precisely. a sermon to be streamed or a podcast to be downloaded or even a set of uh, books to read
2: as good it's, as that can be it's, it's just not complete
0: world that envelops all of that
2: it's the relational dynamic of a local community doing life together for the glory of god following jesus right i mean it's that collective so Um, while the other aspects are important and informing, right, they're not enough. They're not comprehensive. Uh, They're reduced. They're withered. And I think that's where people, first of all, need to grasp from an imagination standpoint that the gospel properly understood, apprenticeship properly engaged in, touches every dimension of my life my priorities, my money, my attitudes, how I treat the poor, right? It's comprehensive. We talk about whole life discipleship. We use that language. But often we don't live that way. Uh, and and how we're formed is not just individual. It's collective where other believers, other people help shape us, speak reality into our life, guide us. Uh, and, and that's why we can't be a fully formed apprentice of Jesus on our own. You know, we have to be a part of a local church family.
0: When we talk about becoming part of a Christian community, joining a church, spending time with other Christians, there's a perception that that is the opposite of easy and light, that actually that can be heavy. Certainly, if someone has a negative perception of the Christian life, it would be because of this idea of burdens or this, you know, they're running the Jack Donaghy joke on 30 Rock about uh, the overwhelming guilt that is what what it means to be a Catholic.
2: Yeah, (laughs) overwhelming guilt. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: They got guilt down. That's that's good. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, Jesus says something Opposite, you know, there's this yoke and it's easy and light. I heard a professor say one time, who you and I both appreciate, that if uh, your Christian life isn't easy and light, it's not from Jesus. You need to qualify it in all the ways that needs to be qualified. Right. right. But his, he just says that his yoke is easy and light. So can you talk about just that dynamic? What it means to submit to this group of people right. to do life that's transparent and yet it's enlivening.
2: Well, the difference is Jesus' yoke is perfectly designed to live the life God had for you to live now and forever. So it's it's a picture of when we're yoked with Jesus, we press into God's design and desire for us. It's truly the good life that's beautiful and true. We do live, right, after Genesis three right now. So in the midst of that, there's a lot of brokenness, a lot of suffering, a lot of struggle. But the goodness of the story is that's not the end of the story and that God can make that purposeful in our life, right? So I love this picture of easy and light because I think what he's, Jesus is ultimately saying, is not that it, there's not effort and messiness and difficulty and clearly there's suffering. But it's not purposeless. It has purpose. It can be f- used to form us. And it is practice. We're all about practice and permanence. How do we live this life out? It's in the messiness of broken fellow believers, right? This is how we're formed for eternity. It's a big part of that. So uh, I think if we think it's easy and light, that means there's no effort or difficulty. That's not what Jesus is saying. But it's a picture of training, It's a training yoke, actually. The text is learn from me. It's a a training yoke. And it's not just trying harder. It's training better. And we do that in community. And we do it with a good purpose, that ultimately it's the glory of God and we're formed in greater Christ-likeness. But we can't do that on our own. So yes, it's hard. But that's the path to practice this apprenticeship with Jesus in a messy community, in a broken world. Uh, And I think that's why it can be said it's light. Mm -hmm. Because it presses into God's design and desire for our life. So
0: what in that context does rest mean? If the conclusion of the great invitation is rest, is that the end of this apprenticeship? Uh, Meaning, you know, some
2: kind of future thing, or is it part of the process? Well, if you trace rest in the scripture, Jesus is clearly going back to Genesis first. The sense that after, in the seventh day God rested, Right and rest. There's been a lot of work on Sabbath, Shabbat, rest there. But ultimately, it's a picture of delight. It's a picture of God delighting in His creation, and it's not just a picture of not working. Okay, so if we have this picture that at the end of God's perfect creation, that was integral, God rested. He didn't rest because He was tired. Okay, it's a picture of joy and delight in God's perfect design and integral creation, perfect harmony. So I use the language that rest is ultimately in in creation, the life God designed for all creation to experience. His desire and design. As we walk through the story, we know in the book of Hebrews, right? That Jesus now has made possible this rest, right? This is where it comes again. That we enter his rest through the gospel. So I'm just saying the great invitation is in the middle of that. And I believe that Jesus is saying unlike the Judaism of his day that was burdensome with all the external rules and, right? He says, come to me, I'm Messiah, come to me. Not all the temple Judaism, all that time period, it's just all the laws, just, we're just suffocating in religious uh, duty, meritorious duties. So that's not it at all. It's me, I'm the Messiah, come to me. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle humble part, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I think he's going back to creation, but he's also Mm -hmm. anticipating the cross, right? And the empty tomb. And ultimately the new heavens, new earth, where we will rest fully in him. That's not a picture of doing nothing or passivity. It's a picture of delighting in God's goodness, a sinless reality as God created us to experience. So, But I do think he's saying, I can give you rest now. Not fully, you will not experience it fully yet, but... In me, you can experience the life that you were designed and created the back in the garden.
0: There's more detail about this concept of apprenticeship uh, in the book, The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership, which is the book uh, we've been talking about. Uh, this is the newest book from Tom. Tom, of course, is the senior pastor of Christ Community Church in Kansas City and the president of Made to Flourish. You can learn more about Made to Flourish at madetoflourish.org. You can and should get the book wherever you buy books. This podcast is made with a lot of help from our friends at Sound On Studios.